of Holiness podcast with Reverend Carolyn Moore and Reverend Pierce Drake. Join us today as we lean into practical holiness, intergenerational relationships, and supernatural ministry. This is a New Room Network podcast. We're so glad you're here. Let's jump in. Well, my friends, it is good to be back with you on the Art of Holiness podcast. First and foremost, welcome. If you've never listened to us, uh, we're so thankful that you downloaded and uh, and that you're taking some time, whether it is on regular speed or half speed or two times speed. Um, man, we're just so grateful that you're with us. We have an incredible podcast today uh, with Carolyn and myself. But first and foremost, let me just say this, Carolyn, um, your interview last week with with Beth. Oh my goodness. I'm, 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 She's good, isn't she? It was so She's good. good. So From good. Distance to discipleship. Yes. And I will tell you this. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this. I, listening to that, um, I got the uh, uh, Claire had gone to bed. Emmy was probably playing in her bed. She wasn't asleep, probably, but <laughs> <laughs> playing in her bed. I think that girl stays up till midnight every night at four years old. Um, mm-hmm. And then. But I was cleaning, you know, we talk about what are our listeners doing during the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, mm-hmm. I was cleaning up downstairs and I had my headphones on and listening. But then it, that little bitty island, little bitty thing that we have in, in our kitchen, mm-hmm. I had a notebook out and every time something, I would walk over and I'd write something. I keep cleaning, <laughs> keep listening. So uh, it was fun to be on that side of the of the podcast. It was fun to be on just the listening side. You know, y'all recorded it. Y'all did everything. Um, we did it. And I listened to I, I it. I recorded it was, something by myself. You did there so is a good. God. You did so good. And uh, talking about a God uh, who mm. moves in power and might, my friends, we yeah. have brought back for us. Yeah. And the thing is this, you already know who it is because you clicked on the episode and his name is on the episode. But, um, yeah. you know, one of our, as we talk about, one of our very first podcasts um, brought him back, Dr. Petey Bellini from United Seminary. My goodness, I can listen to this man talk about Jesus all day long. And he can talk and, about Jesus all yes. day long. I mean, he never seems to lose his enthusiasm. It It is... Beautiful. And in his areas of interest or our areas yeah. of interest, particularly the intersection of pneumatology and holiness. That that means uh study of the Holy Spirit and holiness. I mean, it cannot get any better than that. I don't think so. Dr. Bellini has written exceptional books on both mental and deliverance ministry. You need to look up. He's got a, uh, the Cerulean, the Cerulean, oh, I can't think of the whole name of the book. But anyway, look up his book on mental health because it's, it is excellent and, and deep. And then he has these two new books on deliverance ministry, the X manual out last year and Thunderstruck out just the spring of this year. It's on the deliverance ministry of John Wesley. And those two books and Dr. Bellini himself give us a deep dive dive into Wesleyan spirituality and its take uh, on deliverance ministry. Listen to this and listen all the way to the end because the Mm -hmm. stuff at the end about healing is just, it's, it's gold. It's gold. Pete Bellini, it is a great privilege to have you with us. Uh, you have you have fed into my life 
in, uh, in, in all kinds of ways. I count you as a, both a friend and a mentor. It's just a pleasure to be with you. And Pierce and I were saying before we came on air that, uh, with you that you were either the first or second person we called. So, um, you are among our favorites. Thank you for being with us. Oh, well, you're too kind. It's uh, it's great to be here. It's good to see both of you. And yes, Carolyn, I, you know, we've uh, ministered together and great friendship and, you know, help each other, encourage each other. It's good to have sisters and brothers in Christ. Amen. 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 So I want to jump right in to the deep end of supernatural ministry. We're going to talk today about deliverance. Um, and, and, you know, of course, we... Um, the Gospels are full of people who had demons and who got delivered of them by Jesus. There are at least 25 stories in the Gospels alone, but many more people than that. Matthew says people brought Jesus, uh, brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits with the word. He healed all who were ill. He delivered a demonized man who was living in a graveyard, ostracized. Because of his crazy, sometimes chained up, some totally, totally dehumanized. He delivered a demon out of a boy after his daddy begged Jesus for help. All these things happened while Jesus was walking the earth. So what has happened since? Have demons stopped appearing or has Jesus stopped delivering them? <laughs> uh, those are some great questions. And, uh, you know, you just gave us a little bit of a cursory overview of the Gospels and Christ's ministry. And so, you know, anyone who reads the Gospels, especially the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's hard not to recognize that casting out demons was part of the core ministry of Jesus and his disciples. You know, you see this formula throughout the synoptics, and you see it also in the book of Acts, that Jesus was preaching and teaching the kingdom. You see those two. And three, he was healing all those who were sick and casting out demons, or like uh, Acts says, healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. Uh, so casting out demons is kind of a, a subset of healing. So Jesus and his disciples ministered in this way. It was, it was a part of their core ministry of setting the captives free, and delivering people from demonic oppression and bondage. And so this was the early church's ministry. And uh, if you if you study church history, you'll see that uh, it was also the practice of the early church. It's included in baptismal, the earliest baptismal liturgies. Wow. And even up till today, some of us, like Methodists, it's... it's kind of watered down a bit, but it's included in our baptismal liturgy. It's part of the renunciation vow of the baptismal liturgy. Yep. And so it would usually involve something like, you know, I renounce Satan and all of his works. Uh, in the Methodist hymnal, we took out the renouncing of Satan part and just dealt with the, you know, the, the evil and the works of evil. And those could be interpreted in a lot of different ways as a result of taking out the part where it says, I, I renounce Satan. But in the uh, in the new global Methodist uh, provisional uh, discipline in liturgy, it's it's in there the renouncing of Satan. So you have a tradition of the uh, of it being in our baptismal liturgy since the beginning of the church, and some communions like the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, and Pentecostals have maintained the practice 
even after baptism of deliverance or or and or exorcism sometimes they use different language for it so uh no to answer your question have the demons stopped appearing did, you know did demons uh, go extinct with the dinosaurs in disco no they're they're still around <laughs> it's they the, the demonic still is real and it exists but uh, us in the mainline church uh you know because of what I would say is our our worldview, our enlightenment worldview. Um, we, we we're unaware. I mean, Paul said, you know, he wasn't unaware of the schemes and strategies of the devil. Well, I think because of our worldview, uh, we've become unaware of Satan's existence and his schemes, and as a result, the devil has uh, uh, upped his game and his activity, and its uh, demonic strongholds are on the increase in. In mainline denominational churches, and and certainly in the, in the culture, in the world around us. Wow. Yes, so sir. yeah, I think yeah, I think it's a worldview issue. Uh, the, why you don't see it around? You know, the, the Book of Colossians says that God created all things visible. Hmm. That's the world of the of physicality. And a lot of us get trapped merely in that. That's the scientific enlightenment worldview of physicalism. Everything's physical. Everything has a, a physical cause and nothing exists outside of the physical realm. But the scripture says he created all things visible and invisible. So there's a created order that is visible and invisible. And that's the supernatural realm where the demonic abides and the angelic abides and we in the mainline church have uh, forgotten about this and no longer adhere to it. Wow. So let's, you talked about the early church. Um, let's go back to at least our early days in the Methodist movement. Um, not the early church, I understand the difference, but our early Methodism. What did the early Methodism, historic Methodism, have to say about deliverance ministry? Right. Well, as we remember, uh, Methodism was a renewal movement within Anglicanism. Mm -hmm. And so many of those who were in within Methodism would have been baptized as infants in Anglicanism. And uh, their sponsors, parents, godparents, whomever, would have uh, taken those vows, uh, especially, you know, the clause where there's the renunciation vow, renouncing Satan. So that part would have been a part of their uh, Christian formation. And then uh, later, as uh, Methodism was birthed and flourished, uh, deliverance became a part of a Methodist ministry. Um, you know, our God has always been a God of deliverance from the days of Moses and delivering the the Israelites out of bondage in the Exodus. Um, Christ delivers us from the power of sin and death. And Wesley recognized this as well in his sermon, The Scripture Way of Salvation. He recognized that entire sanctification is what he called full deliverance, deliverance from sin and also the power of, of Satan. And as a result, uh, Wesley and his preachers frequently encountered the, the demonic in their ministry. And they would see demonic manifestations and they were engaged uh, in deliverance. And, you know, we have a couple hundred years of, of Methodist history and Methodist scholarship, but you don't see this brought out too much uh, amongst our scholars. My uh, book that I just released uh, last uh, March, I think it was called Thunderstruck, mm -hmm. The Deliverance Ministry of John Wesley Today, 
is uh, I, I'm pretty sure the first monograph, uh, the scholarly work that brings out the fact that Wesley uh, had a deliverance ministry. And so I was going to read a couple passages. I'll read one now and then um, and maybe later to, to illustrate what Methodists dealt with in uh, in uh, del- terms of deliverance ministry. So uh, this has taken place, uh, you know, and when Wesley was preaching outdoors at Newgate, it says, while Wesley was preaching at Newgate, several people dropped on every side as thunderstruck, thus that term in the title of the book. One of them cried out loud, we besought God in her behalf, and he turned her heaviness into joy. A second, being in the same agony, we called upon God for her also, and he spoke peace into her soul. In the evening, I was again pressed in the spirit to declare that Christ gave himself a ransom for all. And almost before we called upon him to set his seal, he answered. One was so wounded by the sword of the spirit that you that you would have imagined that she could not live for another moment. But immediately his abundant kindness was shown and she sang out in righteousness. So what would happen is, is while Wesley or his other preachers would be preaching, the conviction of the Lord would accompany the sermons and it would begin to minister and deal with people's uh, sin issues and begin to (laughs) surface and emerge. Mm. These demons would start to emerge and they would just fall to the ground as if they got you know, struck dead. He called it thunderstruck. And it it wasn't a pleasant kind of experience. So I Mm. I, I think I'm one of the first people to make the distinction between what we see today as slain in the spirit, so-called, and Wesley's thunderstruck. This was something that was uh, not very peaceful. It was, it was quite, uh, uh, maybe not forceful. The, the 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 power of God would would hit these people who were oppressed, and the enemy would try to tear at them or rip at their soul, almost like you saw in the scriptures when the young boy mm. who was uh try he would when the disciples tried casting the demons out, he he the, the demons you know dropped them to the floor and tried to cast them in the fire and and and, and were quite violent with him. Well we were seeing we're seeing something similar to this in Wesley's ministry frequently. And then they would pray. Uh, sometimes they would uh cry out for repentance and Wesley would minister and pray them through, as the old timers used to say, until they found uh, peace and they found uh, deliverance. So this was very common in early Methodism and later in what I would call revivalist or camp meeting Methodism, frontier Methodism Hmm. uh, in the States in the next century. Very common. So let me ask this, like we, we didn't, maybe we should have started here. I don't know. Um, you know, deliverance ministry and demons, you know, uh, either usually you find churches talking a lot about it or you've never <laughs> heard the church talk about it. You know, it seems to be on one of those polar things. And so, especially in the mainline denomination, as we've talked about just briefly, like, um, especially in our, at least in my heritage of understanding Methodism, it wasn't talked about in the churches I grew up in. Um, so I guess maybe maybe this is a basic question, but I think I'm not the only one that would love to hear you expound upon this. Who can have a demon, right? Who who? Yeah, we we right. mentioned a six year old boy. Can you be saved and have a demon? 
Um, you know, we, we've made the joke joke on this podcast that, you know, sometimes that when a, bu- a bush shakes, everybody thinks it's, it's a demon. Okay, so like, not everything's a demon, <laughs> you know, so, um, but yeah, talk about that. Right, right. Yeah, this, this can go, it, well, this is one of the most... How could I say? We, we've we, when it comes to the church being in excess, we've done it the most in this area. You know, we we've been the most excessive either on one pole or the right, other. Like right. you illustrated, either uh, nothing is demonic, demons don't exist. At best, we'll psychologize them and say, "Oh, they're quote unquote dealing with their demons." but they don't mean them literally. It's more of a psychological problem mm-hmm. they have or an addiction or something like that. Or we politicize them. We make them into social structures merely, but we we don't consider them as having, uh, you know, it, it, the demonic powers really, really exist, fallen angels and evil spirits. So you have that extreme. And on the other extreme, you alluded to, everything's a demon and and we don't have that problem in methodism or probably the the <laughs> former that i mentioned yeah uh you know we, we we wouldn't know satan if he took our church over but of course that never happened <laughs> but uh preach <laughs> the other extreme right is that every demon and and that is not the case either there could be a lot of other issues and problems that can go on in one's life that may or may not uh, involve the devil and there's a lot of uh, uh you know exegesis and discernment needed to uh, ascertain that and we can talk about that later i created a uh, an, a, a psychological evaluative assessment to try to ascertain those things but um what we find in scripture is that demons are real and um, unbelievers can clearly have demons. Now, in terms of the language we use, often uh, you may hear the words or the language of you know demonic possession, possessed by demons. And I, I don't like that language because it's not accurate. It comes from Jerome's translation in the Vulgate of the Greek word daimonizomai, which, uh, as it sounds, it's a, there's an English cognate to it, and I think it's the best translation, and that is demonized, demonized. I like that word better because it shows what I believe to be the case, and that is there are degrees hmm. of demonic influence. It isn't just the all or nothing once possessed or not possessed. Actually, I've been in deliverance ministry for close to four decades, and possession is rare you could i could count them on one hand the out of the hundreds of deliverances that i've done because possession involves that the person's agency their free will is completely uh obstructed and bound by demonic powers i'm not talking about in part but fully full loss of agency it's very rare very rare. What you usually find is that in various areas of people's lives, there is a demonic influence, and therefore there's degrees of influence and control. And those degrees, um, in my uh, assessment instrument, I measure those in four variables. So the degrees are determined by generations. Generations. In other words, is this something 
that is in your uh, your history, your family of origin history? Is it genetic? Do you have a history of this sort of thing? Is it generational? That adds to the degree of uh, demonization. Is this, uh, or what is the duration of this particular uh, practice? So usually I measure uh, demonic influences by practices of, of sin. So is it generational? And what's the duration? Has this been for a year? You've been practicing this two years, 10 years, 20 years? Duration will also determine the degree or influence mm. of demonization and the frequency of practice how often, and the intensity, how mm. strong. So, for example, if you have two two persons that come to me for deliverance, I have person A and person B, and let's look at those four variables. So, say person A is um, uh, has an alcohol problem. They have an alcohol addiction issue, and their family of origin, they can go back and they can go back as far as they can, three, four, five generations, and they've had alcoholism on both sides of the family <clears throat> for four or five generations. So it's a generational stronghold. That adds to the degree of, uh, of demonization. Yep. Then this person um, has been uh, drinking for 30 years. 30 years they've been drinking alcohol. So that's a long time. That adds to the degree of demonization. And they drink frequently every day. That's the third variable, frequency. They're, they're drinking every day, and it's intense. So maybe their intensity every day, they're drinking, you know, a half to a fifth of whiskey. Pretty strong, pretty intense. So you've got some serious bondage here. you got four or five generations. you got them in addiction, and they've been in it for 30 years. They are participating in this, partaking of it daily and pretty intense with, you know, a fifth of whiskey. Then I got my person B who's come to me for deliverance. They have no generational heritage or history of alcoholism. Family of origin, no one's been an alcoholic. Duration, they've been just drinking for the last year. For the last year is their duration. So a lot less than the other person who had 30. And the frequency is... They're hitting it pretty hard, but on the weekend, they're hitting it hard after work Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, and maybe not drinking a fifth of whiskey a night, but, you know, they're, they're drinking a good, you know, 12 pack of beer on Friday night and another one on Saturday night. Pretty intense, but not like the other fellow. Well, when I go into a deliverance session and we're, our team is praying and fasting Usually, person A is a lot more bound up than person B. There's a much greater degree of demonization. Mm -hmm. Now, that could happen in an unbeliever, to answer your first question, mm -hmm. obviously, but it also could happen in a believer. We're not talking about possession. We're talking about degrees of influence. We're talking about that a Christian, you, me, whomever, is not fully sanctified or doesn't have every area of our life fully where it ought to be and may still have a foothold from prior to uh, becoming a Christian that still hasn't been fully resolved, or it's in process, or maybe we opened up a door, a newly, a fresh, since we've been a Christian. Mm. We haven't lost our faith in Christ. We still believe in Jesus, and maybe in many areas of our life, we're actually quite fruitful, but in this one area, we're not. We're not free. We're still bound to a sinful practice 
whatever that may be, that impedes us from fully walking in Christ, but it doesn't mean necessarily we're not a Christian. So someone may say, well, you know, give me scriptural proof. I think there's a lot of scriptural proof, but one of the big uh, uh, passages that hits me right in the face is when uh, the Jesus asks Peter that key question. Now, the disciples have been walking with him, and they're full of the Spirit. They're ministering in the gifts of the Spirit. They're casting out demons, preaching. They're healing the sick. And uh, one of the times when they was preaching the gospel and casting out demons, they came back and bragging about the authority they had. And Jesus, you know, kind of rebuked them and told them, hey, you know, it's good that the demons are subject unto you. But, you know, rejoice that people's names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he even let them know that their names were, were written in the in the in the book of life and they have salvation. Well, in another occasion, uh, Peter, when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember that passage. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father, which is in heaven. So he gets this revelation of who Christ is and that he's going to build his church upon the rock. In other words, that revelation of who Christ is. And uh, Peter and others would be vessels within the church that would preach that message. And then a second later, right after that, Right after Peter's at the pinnacle here with this great revelation, <laughs> and only Pete, only Peter can do this. This is us. So Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth at different places, and yeah. I love it because usually it's it's Mark's gospel that shows us Peter putting his foot in his mouth, and the tradition tells us from the shepherd of Hermas that. Uh, Mark got his gospel from Peter. So <laughs> this is <laughs> this is Peter recognizing Peter afterwards <laughs> that some pretty stupid, pretty stupid things that were ne necessary to leave in the gospel for people like us. So yeah. Je Jesus says, listen, man, yeah, you got that part right, but I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, etc., and I'm going to suffer. And uh, I'm going to be crucified on the th and on the third day resurrect. Well, Peter didn't want nothing to do with that, and he had weaknesses in his life. I mean, obviously he was a he had some fear of uh, of people. He was a he was a, he was afraid of uh, the, what the Pharisees would say. He was afraid to confess Jesus too loud when he was crowding around the fire when they arrested Jesus. He denied him three times before that young lady, you know. And Paul recognized that Peter had a fear of man uh, when it was time to preach to the Jews. So Peter had this weakness in his flesh of, you know, uh, a fear of of uh, maybe going to the places where Jesus wanted him to go in terms of boldness of uh, preaching the gospel. And so when Peter said, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross, basically, you know, uh, <laughs> we got swords, we'll take care of this. Jesus recognized he was no longer talking to Peter, mm. even though Peter believed and Peter got the revelation. He was talking to Satan. Satan actually uh, ministered through Peter and Peter's weakness. And he said, you know, Jesus, that doesn't have to be the case. And, he, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you don't savor the things that are of God, but those things that are of the flesh of humanity. In other words, it's easy for you, Peter, to pick up your sword and fight and, and push this zealot, uh, this zealous uh, agenda rather than watch me be crucified. And then eventually you're going to be crucified upside down. Yeah. So all of that to say, here's Peter, one of the 12 inner circle Peter who gets the revelation wow. of who Jesus is. And then a second later out of his weakness, the enemy's actually 
using him. So there's a degree of influence that Satan has even over Peter. And I've mentioned several places where that happens with Peter. And of course, Peter's no different than all of us who have weaknesses and you know, not everything Satan, sometimes it's just us, but other times it can be the devil who has an attachment yeah. in our life. You know, once it's, once we give in this, you know, temptation, <clears throat> Satan offers us the temptation, but once we keep giving into it, then it forms an attachment and, and the devil has a foothold. Hmm. So, so I want to ask this question. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about why, why you're telling this whole story. I'm thinking about my Catholic friends um, you've been to the Alleluia community here in Augusta. Uh, haven't, I think you have spoken here, right? Is that right? Uh, I, I, I think the last one I was supposed to, but I, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. Okay. Well, I, I'm you know, familiar that, with spirit-filled communities within the Catholic Church, and right, yeah, and 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 it's interesting to me that in in the Catholic Church, there's a great openness to the idea of exorcism. They actually have priests who are yep. dedicated to the work of exorcism, um, and 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 yet in other traditions as we've said i mean mainline traditions you just don't hear about it at all right. you know it's it's almost as if in some tribes we live our day-to-day lives as practical cessationists even if yeah. we do believe that god still saves heals and delivers so yeah. why why is that I, maybe we've gotten at this but i just want to ask uh, first, I want to ask why is it, and then I want to just ask. So, if what does deliverance look ministry look like in the Wesleyan spirit as opposed to, say, the Catholic spirit? Right, right. Um, those are great questions, and you know, as I alluded to earlier, you do have some sacramental traditions, um, churches whose communions. Um, stress the the emphasis that you know they've been around since the early church like the roman catholic eastern mm-hmm. orthodox traditions and mm-hmm. they've maintained the baptismal liturgy of renouncing satan and um and have uh sacraments following that of types of penance repentance sacraments so those practices are deeply rooted in their traditions and the deliverance goes right hand in hand with the penance or the 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 sacrament of repentance because Mm. uh, that's the front end of deliverance without repentance you can't break the legal stronghold of the enemy and you're not going to cast any demons out so they've always had that tradition and, and and have practiced it even through uh the scientific revolution and modernization and the enlightenment though they've had uh their their periods were were that wasn't as pronounced and so uh the roman catholic church uh, more so than the eastern orthodox church uh, over the last couple hundred years has gone through its uh, uh where it has had to face modernity and the scientific revelation revolution and um uh, modernization and what do we do then when we have scientific explanations and the catholic church i think has done a pretty good job of doing more of a both and rather than an either or of that and that's where i come i from, think so looking too at, looking at yeah the science and the theology of it uh and then you have like the pentecostals maybe their tradition hasn't been as long but they claim an early apostolic tradition through uh receiving the baptism of the holy spirit and they're going to say hey we do what the church did in the book of acts which includes uh casting out demons so that's something that they do 
And yet those of us who are mainline, you know, as I said before, some of the reasons that we are practical cessationists, or at least don't deal with that, because you'll get some denominations that'll deal with healing, but they won't touch casting out demons. That's really mm-hmm. the biggest taboo, because you're dealing with, you know, issues of the devil and sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone wants to be healed. And so that's a little more acceptable, even in Methodist churches during our joys and concerns. You know, people yeah. give their list. No one could confess to healings like like the methods not they got healed but <laughs> sickness you know yeah. oh and, you know aunt millie's had a uh, aunt millie's dogs had a hangnail for the last three weeks and can you all pray for it and you better get that in the bulletin they don't expect you to heal <laughs> listen it was it sickness. was it was a really <laughs> bad hangnail okay it's a very and they will very talk for bad 15 hangnail. minutes bad about hangnail. all the medical procedures <laughs> right oh yeah 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 They're yeah no, yeah a to z as soon as you ask if there's any concerns <laughs> they said you want that alphabetical Topical or <laughs> they could confess the sicknesses, but not so much the healing. And again, yeah. I think that's because of the Enlightenment worldview, the the the, the you know physicalism that is predominates us, our worldview in the West. And as a result of that, demons don't exist. And at best, we can explain them away, or we 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 turn them into uh, metaphors. You know, we psychologize yeah. them, we politicize them. Makes no sense to me that the you know the, the that the scriptures would say, "Beware, the devil roams like or the devil like a roaring metaphor roams to and fro, seeking whom he may devour." You know, or Jesus <laughs> cast great. out metaphor. Jesus didn't cast out metaphors. You know, <laughs> but that's what we've kind of done. And so, in in the United Methodist tradition it's more social structures it's more you know and these are and the ills are real structural racism these things are 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 real but this is how they've would explain the ephesians 6 passage of for example principalities powers and that sort of thing that these are evil structures and they're not something that's personalized and definitely not something that you know that there's actually real you know demons in a spirit realm and 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 that sort of thing so i think that is all contributed to why we don't uh, uh you know do this in our methodist tradition and of course uh as within that tradition of being uh, uh, in the midst of modernity as mainliners are then you know we're going to be someone who's doesn't want to go to extremes and say yeah there is the demonic so we're we're going to be the more there you know that the demons don't exist and science can explain it all and we have psychological and uh, other forms of treatment that uh, they can deal with that so therefore you know methods have been quite ignorant about uh this sort of thing and have not been trained properly hmm. as to how to deal you know with this so i guess mm-hmm. that answers the first part of your question yeah, Second so, so what, is, what does it look like in the Wesleyan yeah. spirit? L- l- okay, let me back up a bit and, and look at more theoretically in a Wesleyan tradition, in the Wesleyan tradition, and then practical. So we can look at some of the distinctions that Wesley makes. Um, when Wesley's dealing with the demonic or anything supernatural in, in his theology, he makes a distinction that's very common in his day between the ordinary and extraordinary work or gifts of the spirit. He makes that distinction, that bifurcation over and over again. You know, ordinary would be what God gives to every believer for every age. You know, early church, today, whenever. The ordinary work of the Holy Spirit, which for Wesley would have been his basic soteriology. God's spirit working in prevenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. That's the ordinary work of the spirit. The extraordinary work would have been the extraordinary gifts of the spirit, 
for Wesley. Prophecy, tongues, healing, uh, gifts of uh, exorcism. He would have called those extraordinary. Now, for me, he, that bifurcation is not biblical. And, you know, I love Wesley. I follow Wesley as Wesley follows Christ. And, but, you know, sometimes we got to look at Wesley critically. And if he misses it, he misses it. And I think right. here he, I think here he missed it because in first Corinthians 12, uh, that chapter is to all the believers. And it says that everyone, every believer is given a gift from the Holy Spirit. So it's not something that's, uh, extraordinary, but believers should commonly operate in the gifts because every believer is given a gift. So Wesley makes a distinction and himself, he claims no extra extraordinary gift. He doesn't say that he has any, though, in my opinion, he de facto operates in extraordinary gifts, but in his humility and facing the detractors of that age that would call him an enthusiast, which is the worst thing you can call a Christian in his day and would have undermined and uh, uh, all of the uh, credibility of his ministry. He didn't go that way and, and, and claim any gifts, though he did operate in them. So when it comes down then to deliverance, casting out demons, he would have saw what the early Methodists were doing as ordinary, ordinary. Anyone can do it. No one needs a special gift for casting out demons. And in that sense, I would agree with him. He also makes a distinction. He doesn't say this, but I kind of, I guess, call the, I, I, I classify it as such. When Wesley is casting out demons and early Methodists, they usually do so indirectly through preaching the person hears the convicting word of God through repentance, through prayer, or through worship. Indirectly, the demons end up getting cast out of the people. And Wesley recognized that he would say through these uh, indirect means, demons were being driven out. But they were indirect as opposed to direct. Direct means would be if I personally confronted the devil directly. Satan, I cast you out in the name of Jesus. Now, there are, you know, some rare occasions in Wesley's journals where that happens, but predominantly it's indirect. He's not directly addressing the devil, but he's indirectly addressing mm -hmm. the devil. And, but nonetheless, the demons are, are, are coming out, they're being expelled. And so, Wesley has this deliverance ministry. Now, what we can do with that today, how we can extract that and use some of that for uh, for Wesleyans today is, and I deal with this a lot in my book Thunderstruck, and I just you know, recommend people to to tr uh, to check that out. This this uh, theology of deliverance, you could kind of overlay it as a template on Wesley's soteriology, you know, his prevenient grace, his justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And in the time of prevenient grace is when the Holy Spirit begins to convict people of stuff that's in their lives. And as they follow and receive that, that, that prevenient grace, it becomes convicting grace. And that convicting grace starts to expose and show where they've fallen short and areas that God wants to deal with in their life. And then he, as they're open and willing to, he gives them the gift and the grace of repentance, the repenting grace, where they can be uh, set free and break that legal stronghold over, over sin. That's usually when the demonic is dealt with. Now, for some people, they may have been through a lot in their life and uh, they need intercessors to pray with them 
to uh, be in agreement, and this is where Wesley was doing this regularly, to pray people through in that time of repentance so that the demonic can be driven out because there may have been attachments, demonic attachments in their life mm -hmm. due to open doors that, you know, as the devil came knocking on the door of their soul, the door of their house, they may have opened up the door and done it frequently where the enemy is not on the outside anymore, but he's on the inside attached to degrees or areas in their life. So back to that degrees of influence, you know, they may not be possessed, there may not be a demon possessing every room in the house of their soul, but there may, he may be in one or two rooms, yeah, you know, exercising control. Yeah, that reminds me of Jesus' words. I think it's either Luke 9 or in Luke 10, or right around there, yeah. where they come back and they, they goes, well, yeah. we cast out these, but we couldn't get this one. And Jesus right. says, right, these, this one takes fasting, you know. Um, yeah, and so prayer and yeah. fasting. Yeah, yeah the, you need that. You need that manifest authority that comes yeah. through prayer and fasting. So what I do is I, from Wesley's theology, I extract four principles for deliverance, which are are, are the theolo the theological foundation for anyone to cast demons, but especially for Wesleyans. The first is the law of the cross. That's the foundation and the basis for all of our deliverance that we minister. Um, the, the power, if, if I'm praying for someone to be delivered, the power and the legal basis for that deliverance is, is at the cross. That's where the power of sin, death, and the devil were broken and defeated. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, that's what he meant. Sin is finished. Death is finished. The devil's finished. That's where the power of Satan is is broken. And so when I go to cast out demons, I'm not doing it based on my authority. I don't have any or on my ability to have faith. I'm basing it on the fact that Jesus already defeated the devil at the cross. That's the first law. The Amen. second law is the law of the will or agency. This is where it gets complicated. People are, have to be willing. God's not going to drag anyone into heaven. He's not going to force anyone to be converted or to come to him. He freely invites us, but it's up to us to respond to God's grace. He gives grace to everyone. We have to respond. That's the law of the will. And Satan knows this in the spirit because not only God won't um, violate our law, the devil is not allowed to violate that law of the will. I mean, God won't violate the law of the will and neither will the devil. He can't. There's a, there's a boundary set there in the spirit. He could only do what God permits him to do and further what we permit him to do when he comes knocking at the door and sin is crouching there. We have to resist him and then he will flee. That's what scripture says. Mm. But if we don't, if we open the door, we're giving consent. We're, we are yielding there and the law of the will is being broken. So for, this is how I look at the, the influence that the devil has over someone, those degrees of influence, or the degrees that Christ has over someone. So I kind of put in like a principle. To the degree a person submits to sin or the demonic, or even Christ, to that degree, sin, the demonic, or Christ has authority over that person. To that degree, uh, that sin has authority over a person to the degree they submit. Same thing with our relationship with Jesus. To the degree you submit to the Lordship of Christ, to that degree his Lordship has authority and dominion over you. Wow. And we can walk in the manifest authority of Jesus, and we can see demons flee because you know prayer and fasting we've yielded to Christ. The will gives sin and Satan the legal right to rule, but also 
when the will submits to grace, we're giving Christ our permission mm -hmm. to come in and enter. So when I counsel and minister and deliverance, the, the law of the will is key. We want to encourage the healing of human agency. We want to encourage people to submit to the grace that God's given them, which is very Wesleyan, so that they can experience freedom. And to the degree that they do submit their agency to Christ, they will be set free. But to the opposite, on the contrary, to the degree they submit to the influences of sin, they're going to be bound to that degree over a factor of generation duration, as I said before, uh, intensity and frequency. And then the law, the third law that follows, it's the law of repentance. Um, when someone is, is truly repentant, and they yield their will, that breaks the legal authority that sin and Satan have over an individual. Uh, they cease from sin. Now, they can't do that on their own, but they can express a willingness to give themselves fully to Christ and to no longer give permission to sin. And at that point, when someone is yielded to the grace of God, God gives them the grace of repentance. It's a gift. And, and his power will uh, enable that true repentance to occur where they have godly sorrow. They see the mm -hmm. sin the way God sees it, and um, they're willing to uh, turn it over to the Lord and let Jesus deal with it. And in exchange, you know, God gives them righteousness, forgiveness, and love, and deliverance, and all these great things. And like many of us, we know when this has happened in our lives, because there are things that we have used to do that we no longer do. There are feelings and thoughts that we had that we no longer have anymore. We've had a change of heart, a metanoia. We've had a, a transformation in our mind to the degree so much that it transforms and changes the direction of our life. We're no longer uh, directed towards seeking self, but we've done a U-turn, and now we're seeking God. We're not self-centered, but we're God-centered. And then finally, the fourth law is the law of authority. And this is this is a, a, so important. Jesus is the only one who has the power and authority over the devil. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. That uh, authority over Satan is Christ's. But yet, he gives it to us. He gives us his keys. He gives us his authority. He tells them in Luke chapter 10 and 19, I've given you my power, my dunamis, my authority, my exousia, so that you could use my name and cast out demons. It's like a power of attorney. You know, it's like if, uh, you know, if, if I'm signing a title over to you or giving you permission to do things in my name, like, you know, sell a car, or transfer money over, whatever. Jesus has given us this wonderful power of attorney, which is he's allowed us to walk in his name and all that that means you know we pray in his name well we could cast out demons in his name hmm. this is all part of the gift that he is the legacy and gift that he's bequeathed to us in the in pentecost hmm. he gives us his power to preach his power to work miracles his power to love the unlovable his power to forgive you know, all the things Christ did, he expects us to do. It's called Christ likeness, including mm -hmm. casting out demons, mm. the whole package deal. He gives us his power of attorney. In my name, you shall speak with new tongues. You shall cast out demons. You shall, you shall heal the sick because it's not us doing it. It's Jesus doing it. And that's represented by his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit 
within us because he gives us his Holy Spirit who bears witness to all the work and person of Christ and is the only true executor of the will of Christ is the Holy Spirit. So through the power of the Holy Spirit and the and this wonderful gift of, of the name of Jesus, which is whom the Spirit bears witness to, we are able to walk and live and do what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. that's should be for every Christian, not just you know, the, the super saints or whomever. And so my book, I got two books on the subject. One's called the X manual. It's a comprehensive handbook on deliverance and exorcism. And this book thunderstruck on Wesleyan deliverance. It, it, it gives you the A to Z on how this should be normative in every believer's in every believer's life. And um, that's why the Lord had me write the book was because there's a shortage of these ministries and ministers in the church. And I go around and I do this at various conferences, but there's not, there's not enough for me to go around as my, my wife would tell you if she were here. <laughs> so I got to multiply myself, you know, we write the book and then we have an X seminar, which is the first Friday in May at United Seminary every year. You can come in person. You can come online where we teach how to do this. Cause you mm. need to be a, pre- you need to be apprenticed. You get, you got to yeah. see it done. Yeah. Uh, just like Jesus took the disciples, you know, you, you, we'll give you the theoretical foundation, but you need an apprentice that you can follow and watch and you know give you the practicalities on how to do it and man is it needed today because the the darkness is just really increased and god's grace is increasing because he wants to set people free and uh there's so many bound in addiction so many bound in identity issues sexual identity issues the church is normal church as usual is not going to do what needs to be done that's why people aren't going to church they've been there and they don't see, you yeah. know, the change and the power. But we're yeah. seeing a lot of times outside of the church, the delivering power of God, mm. breaking strongholds. And we're seeing persons from the LGBT community, persons that are in the occult, witchcraft, Satanism, gangs that are coming out of this radically because of the manifest authority of Christ that's going down and uh, and taking captives free. He's, he's going down to the, the pit of hell hmm. and plundering the gates of hell and taking the keys Amen. which yeah. belong to him and setting these captives free where the church is either where, where the church makes the mistake of, of um, how could I say, baptizing, sanctifying their sin and accepting the sin. You got that extreme which is more on the left. And then on the right, you get the extreme of people judging and condemning and pointing fingers at the people in the world for the extreme cases yeah. of sin that we're seeing. Well, that's the world they're supposed to sin. You know, that's what they do. That's why Jesus came. You know, This isn't a surprise. But what they need is the kind of love and compassion from the heart of God that's walking though in the manifest authority that knows how yeah. to put evil under its feet and call yeah. evil for what mm-hmm. it is and set the captives free. And and we're seeing it. I'm seeing it in so many different places. It's amazing. Yeah, so, so let's talk about that for just a minute. Um about how how I mean we serve an attention between our faith in the healing and delivering power of God and the reality that the majority of the people we pray for don't get healed. How do you live in that tension? And right. And, and yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a great question because 
uh, that's some of the reason why people don't believe, mm-hmm. you know, I think the greatest hindrance and probably the only worthy and justifiable, though it is defeatable, uh, apologetic against God and the people of God is the theodicy of why evil exists. You know, mm. if, if, if God's good and powerful, why does this stuff happen? If you're praying for healing, why are people still sick? You know, that whole thing. And it's legitimate. Now, of course, there's a lot of reasons the Bible gives us why we do not receive things from the Lord sometimes. And it's not popular to share this. I don't make it as an excuse for the church's unbelief, but often sin can separate us from God. A lack of repentance can separate us from God. Sometimes an unwillingness in our agency can separate us from the healing or the deliverance that God has for us. Sometimes it's unforgiveness. Sometimes the church or the persons that are praying could lack authority or or unbelief. I mean, stuff happens. Usually in healing ministries, at best, if they're honest, you got about one in three. One in three. That's, you know, that doesn't seem like a lot of you know, people get healed one and three. If you're playing baseball, you'll win a batting title with it. It's 333 batting average if you hit the <laughs> Well, because hitting the ball yeah. is not e- yeah. hitting the ball is not easy. So we're not talking about something that's yeah. that's commonplace. You know, Jesus had a higher batting average. I'm not Jesus. I'm I'm still working on I'm still working on that. But here's ultimately how I prefer to look at it. I mean, those all those things I mentioned are realistic. And if I'm counseling someone in the C-113 assessment that I created, we go through that itemized list to make sure that people are checking off the boxes, that there is no unforgiveness in their life, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, I look at healing this way and deliverance because deliverance is a subset. Healing is based off of the resurrection. Healing is based off of the resurrection. The resurrection is the inbreaking of the eschaton, the new life of the kingdom. So from that source, from the resurrection, that's the alpha. That's the beginning of our healing and deliverance. But more than that, it's actually the omega of our healing and deliverance because we walk towards it in receiving our glorified state. So healing in this life right now is based on and received on a trajectory that's always beginning and ending with resurrection from now, because it's kingdom now, but kingdom not yet. Yep. The problem is, is we 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 overrealize eschatology or underrealize it. Often Methodists underrealize eschatology, and they don't they don't have the faith or they don't preach that we can receive God's kingdom here and now, salvation, healing, and all that. Or we can go on the other end and force or realize eschatology and say, "Hey, we got to overthrow the government and bring the kingdom of God on earth." Well, that's an overrealized eschatology. Right. We're in a tension between kingdom now and kingdom not yet. But all of that is on a trajectory of resurrection. If I pray for healing now, I'm drawn from the resurrection power of Christ. That's the initial aspect of my healing. But regardless if I get healed of a thousand sicknesses, I'm still in a body that's going to die. Right? So my Mm -hmm. ultimate healing is going to be the resurrection of my body, the glorified state. So that's the completion or the omega of my healing. So -hmm. when we pray for healing, we need to teach people the healing is based on the full trajectory of what the resurrection means. So in that sense, when we're looking at uh, our healing dashboard, if you will, we're praying for someone and we're looking at our healing dashboard, we need to recognize that it can occur immediately. 
healing, or in increments mm -hmm. and in many dimensions. It could be spiritual, mm -hmm. physical, mental, emotional. It could occur immediately right now. It can occur in part over time. And we need yeah. to be open to all forms of healing, however they occur, on that wide extensive healing dashboard that we need to have not just kind of the pentecostal one that says if we don't have immediate ceasing of symptomology now then you're not healed mm. that right. healing can occur in so many other and different ways it's much more nuanced and we need to be able to recognize how it can register so we need a much more broader widespread dashboard, if you will, that we're looking at that involves resurrection theology. Resurrection is the source and the goal of all of our healing, which is ultimately full transformation in the image of God in Christ. So healing is different than curing. There's a difference between healing versus curing. Curing is a ceasing of physical symptoms. Now, that may involve healing, but it doesn't necessarily have to. You can be cured of sin and never know Jesus and die in your sin, right? Uh -huh. You can be cured of cancer and, and never have a commitment to Christ. Mm -hmm. But healing, healing is being transformed in the image of God in Christ. And that is immediate. That is in the eschaton. That is spiritual, physical, mental, emotional. It's holistic. It's totally different. And it can involve this physical ceasing of, of symptoms if God so chooses, because God's the healer. You know what I mean? So, for example, I remember one time my aunt um, had uh, some life-threatening ailments, and my family asked me to pray for her, knowing I was a Christian and believing in healing. And I prayed and interceded, and they said, pray for her healing, because uh, this is really bad, and doctors, uh, you know, the, the reports are not really good. Well, I went to pray, and I heard the Holy Spirit crystal clear, and I had my dashboard ahead of me. Lord, your healing could occur anywhere and any way on this trajectory of resurrection. I'm open to it. I pray, but I'm always expecting all of it to be possible. You know, Lord, you could heal her right now, immediately, or you could do it gradually, or it may be that her healing is in the, in the, in the resurrection. I heard crystal clear the Lord say, do not pray for her physical healing. Pray that her soul be ready because I'm taking her home tonight. Wow. Mm -hmm. What I heard. I called my family up. I told them the same. I said, it's maybe hard to swallow, but here's what the Lord told me, the wisdom he gave me. Pray for her soul to be ready because he's taking her home tonight. And then in that sense, she's receiving the omega of her healing. Mm -hmm. She's receiving the fulfillment of her healing, which is the resurrection in total, all of it, not just in part here in the you know kingdom now, but this is the ultimate healing. And so when you're talking about healing on that kind of continuum, uh, it's a whole different story than merely did they get cured of all their symptoms immediately. They're two totally different things. And I think one is a caricature of God's healing that the Pentecostal movement has created this almost car caricatured version. And the other is a much more deeper, broader, wider, uh, nuanced, pastoral, theological variant of it that uh, considers all possibilities. Wow. Yeah. So, so. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, yeah. So there's yes. a difference between never, healing and I, curing. Yeah, I've never thought I, about that. I've never that. heard that before. Me neither. The difference between healing and curing. It makes huge sense. And actually, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about all of the things that I've got three three situations in my head right now. It's mm. like, okay, that makes that make a whole lot more mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. You know, my wife had stage four cancer. And she'll tell you today that if, she, if, if 
for some reason, if that cancer would have gotten to her at that point, there was a whole lot of spiritual healing that needed to happen that wouldn't have happened, and the Lord would have took her too soon. Wow. She, she claims that that was one of the most powerful things. God didn't put the cancer on her, but God used it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what happened was, she said, the most important thing was the spiritual and emotional and relational healing that took place through the time period that I had stage four cancer that was most important. Now, she got physical healing as well. God healed her physically through uh, medicine, and that's a whole other thing. There's a lot of different ways in which God heals, and mm-hmm. prevenient grace tells us that God gives grace to the just, the unjust, the sun shines, the rain falls on the just and unjust. So he provides healing means and curative means through his prevenient grace, which includes the medical field. So she received healing through uh, medical treatment and through, of course, all of us praying. But that was that curing was not what was most important. She needed areas of her soul healed that God was only able to get deep in there by this thing getting her attention. And she claims it was the best thing that ever happened to her. Not that God gave it to her, but allowed it to occur for her to seek the Lord as she did. So there's an example of healing versus curing. She not only was cured, she was healed. Healing is the transformation in the image of God and Christ, which is most important. Mm -hmm. And that occurs on every level, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional. It helped heal stuff in our marriage and and, in our broader family. It was just an overall soteria, a shalom, a a salvation on multiple levels, more than just a mere ceasing of symptoms, though it included that. Yeah. Amen. Yep. And you can see pastorally, that's a whole lot easier yeah. to work with the Jesus you know yep. yes. than trying to put that round hole into a square peg, you know, yep. kind of thing. So as we listen to this, as we listen, as we go to class, as they say with Dr. Bellini, as we, <laughs> as we, as we, as we listen, um, obviously people, I pray, as we pray before we even hit record, that they're stirred in this um, and, and God will give them ears to hear it. Mm. So then, so then on that end... Where do people, where does a person or a church, and I'm actually going to throw this question to both of you, and I'll talk about why in a second, but but where would a person or a church start if they wanted to enter into these waters of, of deliverance ministry? Give us some starting points for, for developing a healing and deliverance ministry. Obviously, you've got these two books, you've got the conference, um, and the reason that I want to bring in Carolyn specifically for this is, Carolyn, like you've, you've had a history of practicing healing ministry as kind of a, as a gift in your life. But Chris on your team, a pastor, has more stepped into deliverance in the last few years as mm-hmm. as as the op, as a gift that he's been operating in, learning, etc. And so mm-hmm. from both of you, I would love to hear kind of as a church, as as an individual, first and foremost, as an individual feeling called mm-hmm. to this, and then as a church body. Um, and I'll let either one of you arm wrestle this out and uh, go first. <laughs> I'll go quickly and let Carolyn finish with sharing her ministry and story. Um, you, you alluded to two things. It's not just, you know, sell my material, but it's why yeah, I created it. Exactly. I'd, I'd encourage people, get the X manual. It's, on, it's yeah. at Amazon. Get Thunderstruck. It's an A to Z on, on deliverance. So you need the theoretical training, and that's going to give it to you. Um, and then I'd encourage you to come to the X seminar in May. That's going to give you more uh, training, more hands-on training. We certify people when they finish, they take the course, they get a, a certificate of completion. You need that kind of training because you don't want to go out there and, and do this is very, 
it can, if you don't know what you're doing, it, it can be very dangerous. Uh, you could get a Sons of Skiva experience where, you know, the devil's been known to beat the tire out of people that don't know what they're doing. You know, you want to make sure you, you know what you're doing, A, and most importantly, that you're pastoral and you know how to work with people because uh, the, I teach people the pastoral dimension over the prophetic dimension and casting out demons. We want to mm. protect people's human dignity. And so there's do's and don'ts in how to do that. Yeah. And we're not we're not there to show off and uh, you know do st- I, I don't do deliverance in the middle of a of a huge uh, church service. We take them in a private room. No one wants to be manifesting demonic spirits and and having their junk you know displayed and all of that in front of a, a congregation or your family or children. You, you, you got to protect and cover people's dignity. So we teach about all of that and how to do it. And then, so my ultimate uh, advice is. Is besides, you know, go to the seminar, get the books, is you got to be apprenticed. And these two, these methods will help you. The book helps, the seminar yeah. helps. You know, I'm not big into programs. I'm big into people. God builds mm. people. People build the kingdom. Jesus is a person. He wasn't a program. And Jesus was the method. You know, he taught people by people being with him. You know, you, you we, we see it modeled how to do it. And that's how I learned. I, I got thrown into it and I learned how to do it by the Holy Spirit teaching me. And then later by uh, walking with other seasoned people of God to see how they're mm. how they're doing. It. And that's how the disciples did it. So if, if that you feel you have that call, get the books, come to the seminar and sit under the, the teaching and apprenticeship of someone who's gifted in that area in the gifts of healing. Remember, deliverance is a gift of healing. Jesus healed all those who were oppressed of the devil. Corinthians talks about the gifts of healing. This is one of the gifts of healing. So people that are demonized need to be healed. It's just a different type of healing ministry, mm-hmm. but it's a healing It's a healing ministry. Yeah, I wish somebody had shared that pastoral over prophetic piece with me before. Uh, <laughs> I um, had somebody slithering across the floor in front of everybody and, you know, that kind of stuff. I just, yes. I, when you get to the, you know, when... That's not going to happen often, but you can't promise when it's going to happen. And, yeah, it's a uh, surprise so, when the devil comes out. It's like a jack-in-a-box. You don't know what right. you're going to get. That's and right. all of a sudden, a person's right. acting in a way that they normally wouldn't act. Well, we got to protect their dignity. I don't need right. a demolition crew. I need nurses, spiritual nurses and physicians that Come handle right. their care Come more on. than yeah. I need a demolition crew. Come yeah, on. Amen. that's it. Um, my experience has, has been similar um at least to how you started uh pete and that i i just got thrown into it and a friend of mine and i we got mentored from afar through francis mcnutt's mm-hmm. videos back in the day when there were yep. videos and um and then and then through a, a another ministry that um just really taught me a lot about about healing prayer and about the deliverance side of healing prayer and uh, and a lot of mine has been through trial and error um, I have, yeah, I have my, my rule of thumb is the only way to know how to do it is to do it. And, uh, and to trust that, you know, nobody dies. If you, ju- if you, if you, if your heart is right and you mean well, and you're not bringing some arrogance or, or, um, uh, you know, conceit to the table, trying to own something or find a Facebook post you can make. If you're not doing any of that, the, the Lord will be faithful. And, uh, so you just do it by doing it. Right. And uh, right. and and as as we over these years at Mosaic have done more and more inner healing, 
um, we've discovered I actually have more of a gift for inner healing. My associate, Christopher, has more of a gift in the area of deliverance ministry. And they work hand in hand. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so we, set, we kind of some of his, some of mine. And um, and we uh, it's, it's been really it's been it's been a really life giving part of our ministry because uh, I, I have to tell you, um, just recently I did healing prayer with someone and uh, pretty significant things happened. And that uh, this person is um, is in a uh, is in therapy with a non-Christian. And when this person went to their therapist and explained, you know, what had happened in healing prayer, the therapist said, you just got two months worth of EMDR <laughs> in a moment. Um, so I'm so glad they acknowledge that. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh so, so there's, there's, I, I, I particularly appreciate what you said about the incremental n- n- nature. It's not all, we shouldn't really, in my experience, um, the flashpoint happens in a second kind of ministry is less prevalent. The, right. It's, it's what, when Jesus said to the guy who, the, the, the blind guy, you know, after he laid hands on him and he said, sorry, so what do you see? Well, I see people, but they're like trees walking. And so then Jesus laid his hands on him again. And if, and if it takes two tries for Jesus, well, <laughs> I don't need to feel bad if it takes a couple of tries for me. He teaches me I can, can ask questions. I can, I can uh, move That's in. how we learn. Yeah, exactly. We learn develop. We're developmental creatures. We learn developmentally. Mm-hmm. If God were to heal certain things instantaneously, some things would put us into shock and we wouldn't be able to handle and cope with it. We need it a little bit at a time and he knows best. Yeah. And, and, and so the people I pray with are often my best mentors because I've yes. learned through that yes. story of Jesus to ask questions yep. in the middle of it. Yep. So what are you yep. feeling right now? Absolutely. What's happening right now? What, what, what are you seeing in your mind's eye? Yep. Yep. Um, and, and they teach me, you yep. know, what, what's happening when a person gets very tired all yep. of a sudden, or what happens when a person all of a sudden feels light or whatever. Right, the different manifestations. Yeah. You got to interview yeah. the, the form I have teaches people how to mm-hmm. ask those interviewing kind of questions really because the person themselves is going to be the expert if they really been delivered because the spirit's going to bear witness in their spirit primarily. And then will yes. be confirmation, you know, yes. that, yeah, that's the case. They'll know. Yeah. We could talk about this all day long. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. But we need it. There's so many people that are hurting and broken. And three points in a poem and a couple of hymns isn't going to set them free. They need people that are willing to go down to hell with them and and walk with them. And And sit in their graves. Yes. yes. Amen. Yes. And amen. Thank you so much. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all. Weird. I have to tell. I have to tell you this. You were you were uh, saying the name of your book, Thunderstruck, while thunder was happening over my head. Oh wow! Amen. <laughs> so I, was like, I actually texted Chris. Can you or Pierce? Can you hear that? Can you hear that? Amen. Well, that's what we need. We need to walk in the manifest authority that wherever we goes, the gates of hell quake, they shake, mm. and God says, yes. "Let my children go." Yeah. Amen. Addiction, Amen. let my children go. Perversion, let my children go. Abuse, let my, children, let my children, children go. Trauma, let my children go. And when we speak that with the heart of God like that, with that kind of authority, it can't hold on. 
The Amen. graves have to bust open when there's that kind of thunderstruck, that kind of quaking. Yes. Mm. Wow. Yes. Amen. 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 Thank you again. Yes. Thank well, you so I'm much. I'm glad to be with you. I love you. So and it's good. always good to talk and share. So I'll good. See you thank soon. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you. Take care. Bye. Blessings. Blessings. One of the things that I love about this conversation and and every time we talk to him on and off camera and and Mike mm-hmm. is it is for him it is never simple theory it is never simple right. thought it is it is not only practice but you know one of the things that I love about true Wesleyans um, and and he is one is that mm-hmm. they take the 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 doctrine the, the doctrine the theology they put it into practice. Yes, but then they also, when they give it away, they give it away in simple, understandable uh, options. Look at class meeting, band meeting, society. I mean, these things were, they, they were methods to it and they were simple. And right. so just his like four principles that he walked us through or his right. or his uh, four approaches to lit, figure out like what's the level of influence that the demonic has in this generations, right. durations, intensities, frequency. You know, I mean, even I'll be honest, like in that, I'm looking at my own life going like, okay, look at my family of origin. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about stuff that right. I struggled with. I'm thinking about the intensity, all, all the things like I'm all, I'm thinking about all that. Um, I love mm-hmm. the way that he takes it, not just from theory and doctrine and theology, he puts it into practice and then he gives it to us in a way to practice ourselves and enter into the story in a practical way itself. And then you can hear all of the compassion oh. in his voice too. When he gets to the pastoral stuff, you know, yes. past, pastoral over prophetic, yes. um, care for the person, protect their dignity. Um, that's all, that's just, that's just so full of heart. I loved the distinction between healing and curing. And um, I want to plug yeah. By the time you hear this, we will have had a service on uh, uh, one of our our next worship services. Somebody who's coming on to talk about uh, how God has healed her, and this is a she's a perfect example of the difference between healing and curing. She has she she's come basically back from stage three C cancer, wow. but her big her healing is spiritual, emotional, and relational. And that is, she has said that's the more important healing there. The curing is ongoing. She's still in treatment. Yep. But the healing is 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 so much more as as Dr. Bellini said, so much more than just the ceasing of symptoms. It affects the things that endure. Yeah. I think this is one of those one I think that's going to that distinction between healing and curing, as we talked about it being a pastoral thing. Um, And I don't mean just Mm -hmm. for those that are called to the ordained ministry, but just for all of us Mm -hmm. walking in it Mm -hmm. is, I think that's going to help a lot of us, as we talked very briefly around it, in our prayers with each other. Yes. Given us, you know, and so to me, you know, got the theory, there's the book, we talked about this, his two books, there's other books out there on it. Um, be careful, I would just say that on on that's why we have him on the podcast. and and so <laughs> so there's that side of it. But the thing that we didn't get to really talk about a lot on the podcast, um, just uh-huh. because of time is this is truly one of those things that that the need for apprenticeship is yes. is deeply needed. and yes. and you know the the tried and true statement, there are some things that are just simply better caught than taught. That's exactly and right. And this is one that that you feel called to it. 
desire it, questions about it, whatever the process is. Yeah. Um, it, it's not one to be done alone. And, it, it's, and it's right. one to find someone. And and so, you know, I think for us, so many of us it, that grew up in mainline denominations, especially in the in our stream of the United Methodist Church growing up for so many of us, that we were like, yeah, I would love to apprentice under someone. I don't know anyone. I have no one. I, have, I don't know anyone. I don't, I don't know anybody. Well, that's right. great. Well, there's a thing right. There's a thing called a plane, and you can hop on it in May, okay. and you can go up to, to United Seminary and spend uh-huh. the time with them and and build relationships, you know. Um, and and, and I'm not saying that's the only be, play. Yeah, you can also be mentored um, online, and you can be mentored through the books. And yep, but, um, which is how it happened for me. Right, I I didn't have anybody local. Yep, I just found a friend, and we started learning together, and yep. we used the resources that we found online, and and it was and it was and it was a great start. Yeah. And the the bottom line is this: the only way to learn how to do it start is to do it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, my friends, I hope this stirred your faith today in a conversation that we really don't talk a lot about. Um, yeah. And the church doesn't do, but we are, and uh, and thankful for it. Thank you to Dr. Petey Bellini for being with us. Always an honor, my friend. And uh, here's the great thing: Do you know this? I think you know this about him. He's a massive boxer. He loves boxing. You know? Do you know yeah. this? He yeah. Lo- oh, yeah, yeah. I do. He loves boxing. If you, if you look on his, if you look on his Facebook page, he's got tons of stuff there. Him and his son both. Yeah. yeah. Jordan Wilson, who's a friend of ours, and. Uh, speaking at New Room this year, and she's in a, in a group of pastors with me, is a spiritual daughter to him. And uh, she said one of the first gifts he ever gave her was a pair of boxing gloves. So I just love that he uh-huh. will knock you out in multiple ways. That's um, right. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, thank you so much. My friends, hey, what listen, force. what a force. We love you. We hope that you are doing well and um, be blessed. Be a blessing. Go out there and we will see you next week.